Next week, we'll be back with Journey to Babel. And, of course, we're going to have a little bonus edition at the top of that as well, talking about uh, how this episode is impacted or changed by the events that happened in Season 2 of Discovery. So that'll be a a little uh, post-episode goodness next week, so stay tuned for that. Otherwise, enjoy this week's behind-the-scenes greatness. Egos can do a lot to make TV less good, to make it more good, to make it different, to change things. It'll be your opinion whether or not it's for the better or for the worse. We're going to get into that and so much more on this week's episode of The Brothers Trek About. (laughs) Coming at you here from Austin, my name is Matt, and as always from Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. They sure are. Well, this week we are not only going to discuss the important battle between the two ge- the two genes, uh, Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, but we are also going to be discussing uh, what happened to Desi Lu. And uh, actually, I think that's just where we're going to start today. We're just going to start on the collapse of Desi Lu. So, as we've previously discussed in many episodes, most of the shows under Desi Lu's care care were, was leaking money. Right, we got uh, Mission Impossible. That they were constantly going over budget. Obviously, Trek. We've discussed that in a lot. Um, and while they were renting space on Desilu lot, which we know about, right? We got Mayberry. Uh, Mayberry was on the Desilu lot. Um, the, uh, Gomer Pyle's base was on the Desilu lot, and also the Stalag from Hogan's Heroes also on the Desilu. And the company shows earnings in 1966, of $19 million, more than half of which was coming from the the rental stages. However, it turns out that Lucy's own show, The Lucy Show, was the only one in their catalog that was making any kind of profit. So, set the scene here. It's the summer hiatus between the first two seasons of Star Trek, and Desilu now decides is the time to sell. They feel like they can't keep the shows up and running anymore. They feel like the money's just coming out like a sieve. And just next door, with literally a fence between them, was Paramount Pictures, who was very interested in taking over Desilu off of Lucy's hands and making a profit off of those uh, extra sets. I I think part of this is that as Lucy's getting older, right, people around her, you know, people looking out for her interests... Uh, would rather see her leave with a stable fortune than a fortune that's at risk because you know these these shows are making demands and maybe they'll work and maybe they won't. Why, why have Lucy at risk for things going poorly? Or you know, she could leave now, get a block of money, put it in the bank, and she's safe. But going forward, you know, yeah, maybe she'll become richer. But, like, does Lucy need to be richer? But on the downside, she could lose her shirt. 
right? And she could lose her her fortune, and that would be sad. So there are people who are just kind of like, let's protect Lucy from risk. Yeah. Get out, make it safe. You know, and this is part of the problem of having, like, one person who owns the thing rather than, like, a company in which there's, like, a million investors and theoretically everyone, it's, like, it's in perpetuity. This is not an in perpetuity venture. So quick interesting history about Golf and Western. They started off as just a metal company who used to produce bumpers for cars. Uh, you know, they had uh, agricultural products that they got into, home consumer products, agricultural. And uh, when they bought Paramount Pictures in 1966, it would end up being a turning point. There were still things that they had owned, uh, like New Jersey Zinc, uh, they owned a sugar company for a while. It was these kinds of things that they eventually got rid of and then just became, you know, the Paramount Corporation in 1989, which, of course, is how we know it now, right? So it got rid of everything and just started doing publishing and <clears throat> entertainment, mass media, and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of interesting. Also, one of their early uh, early buys in 1969 was also Sega Enterprises. So that's kind of interesting as well. But to get back to where all of this comes together. So like I said, the physical neighbor to Desilu is actually Paramount Pictures and Gulf Western, uh, which obviously was a cash-rich uh, parent company, Gulf Western. And uh, they're looking to expand. Paramount also had nothing going on on TV. It was all movies. So they were really excited to be able to get in with Desilu get a relationship going with a lot of the networks and see what they could make happen uh, on their own right. So needless to say, Lucy was a little bit resistant, right? The, the first female studio head didn't want to lose her studio. And uh, even at a key moment in her negotiations, she fled down to Miami to do a episode of the Jackie Gleason show. And uh, the lawyers are calling her, her agents are calling her, she's not picking up the phone. So finally her lawyer decides uh, he's going to go down there and find her. So he finds her hotel, and uh, she said this about that moment. <clears throat> I just couldn't make up my mind. Mickey, her lawyer, had to have an answer. 24 hours or we blow the deal, he says. So we went over the whole thing again, and I started to cry. I needed an hour, I told him. I just got to have an hour. So uh, she finally talks to uh, Bloodhorn, who is the, uh, the guy who owns Paramount, and says, uh, she says, I talked to him. And do you know what he said? He said, Miss Ball, one of the things I'm prepared to like about you is that you care. So I cried again, and then I said yes. So Golf and Western Industries absorbed Desilu Studios in a $17 million stock exchange deal. Golf and Western combined with Paramount's holdings with uh, Desilu's three studios to become a 62-acre property. In return, Lucy's 60% of the controlling interest of Desilu stock was traded for $10.2 million of Gulf and Western stock. So uh, that's a pretty good chunk of change that she ends up with uh, at the end of that deal. It really is. So there's, there's two ways to calculate it. We could figure out what that stock would be worth. Well, that's true. But she got a cash uh, value of stock, right? So we can figure out what the money is worth. 
60% of her controlling interest in Desilu Scott was stock was traded for $10.2 million into golf and Western stock. It's 1968? Yep. 75.5 million dollars. Wow, in today's money. That's amazing. So uh, besides giving up uh, Desi Lu, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, and Mannix, don't forget about Mannix, Lucy uh, made arrangements to end the Lucy show. She, uh, the series was a hit, and it was the second highest rated show on TV. So Lucy still owned the series, but she didn't want, so she didn't want to hand it over to Gulf and Western. Instead, she would sell it to syndication... <clears throat> And then, for the 68-69 season, would launch a new series called Here's Lucy. Paramount could own that show, and CBS would happily place it into Lucy's long-standing Monday night slot. Which, you know, if you think about it, is fascinating to think that, you know, one of the earliest sitcoms on TV from the early 50s was I Love Lucy, who, you know, her and Ricky had their breakup. She brings back the Lucy show. She's continuously on TV. And then she loses the Lucy show, but then she starts off this other show for Paramount and CBS that also, you know, I mean, she literally was for almost two decades. I mean, she literally was, not almost, literally was the reigning queen of television, you know, in its origins. That's fascinating. For two decades, two decades. That's amazing. You're not going to see many people do that anymore. Not anybody's going to do that anymore. Crazy. Lucy then had, they did a, uh, she went to a uh, a ribbon cutting, which was literally where they knocked down the fence that stood between Paramount Pictures and Desilu. She told the visiting press that Mr. Bloodhorn is interested in keeping uh, the lots alive, not inactive, and that's what I want. It's a natural marriage, and I was happy to make it. If, uh, if we just value the stock, it's probably more like three billion. Three what? Three billion. Three billion. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, if if she just owned the stock and never did anything with it, and so those shows get to continue on the the brand Desi Lou, and Lucy remains this figurehead at the studio, but Lucy's industry savvy told her that this was only a temporary situation. In an interview with uh, the Hollywood columnist Rex Reed, she said, I never wanted to be an executive, but when my marriage to Desi broke up, I couldn't just walk away from my obligations and say, forget it. We were an institution, so I took on all the responsibilities. Now I've just sold the whole damn thing to a bigger corporation, and pretty soon they'll take my name off the door and I will be free, she says. Interestingly enough, uh, after uh, selling Desilu, Ball established her own production company called Lucille Ball Productions in 1968. The company went to work on her new series for Here's Lucy. The program ran until 1974 and enjoyed several years of rating success. Ball returned to network television again in 1986 with the short-lived Life with Lucy. But what was she at that point, like 70 years old or something? It lasted eight episodes before it was canceled. First for Ball because of poor ratings. Uh, Desilu, the Desilu Paramount TV holdings are now owned by CBS Corporation and the eventual owner of uh, the pre-1960s shows. Desilu Productions was reincorporated in Delaware in 1967 and still exists as a legal entity, most as a licensee for I Love Lucy-related merchandise. I think she needed to solve mysteries. 
Yeah, right? If she would have known. Could have been Murder, She Wrote. Well, and, and Matlock, right? Oh, yeah. You're right. Um, one of, you know, listening to the, the podcast with uh, uh, Rob Long, he revealed not too long ago that an idea he always had bumping around was, uh, uh, what is her name? One of these. Who was the star of uh, that one thing? Where did she wrote? No. Um, Cabaret. Liza Minnelli. Yeah, that Liza Minnelli would, would basically solve murders. So she'd be Liza Minnelli, right? So she's, you know, doing a show in Vegas, and she's supposed to be practicing, but instead, murder she wrote like, you know, crimes fall into her lap, and like, so the episodes are her solving crimes, but it's Liza Minnelli <laughs> being Liza Minnelli. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdo. So she's missing practice and stuff like that. She's out digging through dumpsters or whatever. Finding clues. Um, so both Gene Roddenberry and Robert Justman were hoping that having access to the great stores of Paramount sets and props was really going to help production yeah. values on Trek. Uh, they had warehouses full of this stuff. But we will later see that with big corporations comes more red tape, some more micromanaging, and a little more making of profits. So uh, Roddenberry sends out this memo to the go-betweens between Desilu and Paramount asking this question. <clears throat> he, ends this, uh, he ends the note asking the questions, Are there any production people over, over there aware that we are anxious to cooperate for our mutual benefit? Well, uh, Cashman here, the uh, writer of this great book, says uh, mutual benefit, however, requires mutual goals. And Roddenberry's agenda was very different from the studios. He wanted to produce quality television, whereas they wanted to turn a profit. Roddenberry and Justin, well, I mean, this, go ahead. This is always the, you know, uh, the actor and the backer problem, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you, you see it in, in Shakespeare in Love, right? Right. And while to a certain extent that is a play on the modern circumstances, it's also like real stuff. That there was the money, and the money wanted to, uh, to make more money. Or, oftentimes in patronage, you wanted to enhance your status in ways that you could not purchase. So, you know, you've already got a nice outfit, you've already got a nice carriage, you've already got a nice house. I can't buy another nice house and get that same additional respect but i could put on a show and delight the people this is you know bread and circuses which is coming up next <laughs> ronberry and justman quickly learned that uh corporate bean counters were worse than anything star trek had experienced under the management of the cash board desilu Roddenberry wrote to Justman on september 21st this would also be like six years before i was born so that's cool uh to the date as I understand the new Paramount Desilu, uh, Desilu television methods, it will be our responsibility to turn out Star Trek scripts, which in the final shooting version will budget out to 180 or 182,500, depending on the final figure determined by me and John Reynolds. So far in this season, however, only two episodes have been made for those amounts or less. 
We got the Doomsday Machine, which was filmed in five days so that they could have more money for photographic effects. And the Changeling, which was a bottle show that all of that had no guest stars and a big prop called Nomad. Also, 10-hour work days on television production, which does not include time and makeup, uh, provides precious little time to achieve all that must be done. As we know, they went over uh, lots of times, you know, an hour and a half, a half hour, an hour. So uh, this was another problem because set preparation takes time, lighting takes time, camera blocking takes time, rehearsing takes time. And even when the camera would begin rolling shortly after 8 a.m., Paramount mandated that the set be wrapped at 6.30. So as you can definitely tell, this is going to become harder and harder here for uh, the Trek production crew to get their uh, job done. Between the productions of Trouble with Tribbles and Bread and Circuses, which is where we're at, conveniently, the stages of Star Trek went dark for two weeks so that GR and some of the key cast members could go out and make uh, the all-important publicity rounds including live appearances and on talk shows, which included Shatner and Nimoy themselves arriving on the set of Good Morning America, live with then-host Barbara Walters. On uh, August 14, 1967, Gene Roddenberry was among those who was presented the uh, first M NAACP Image Awards at the Beverly Hilton. Uh, they honored uh, Gene Roddenberry, uh, for Star Trek, other shows like Hogan's Heroes and Mission Impossible for their efforts to portray Negroes in better light. That was uh, the inscription there. August 30th, 1967, Daily Variety ran the headline. With Trek on hiatus, stars on the promo prowl. Their primary targets, according to the article, were Nielsen cities, such as Portland, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, uh, Dallas, and uh, Atlanta. Ryan Berry would fly to Washington and New York. And also... Nimoy was making money doing uh, parade appearances and such. He was also getting invited to Nassau, where he got it. Nassau. NASA? Where are we going to Jamaica? Yeah, we're going you're to Jamaica. You're just thinking. Uh, Goldeneye. Yeah, or or uh, you're still in Thunderball land. Right, exactly. Uh, no, he went to NASA. That's where he went. Yeah, but I mean, the, the so idea that you're in the Caribbean. It's very different when you're when you're going to NASA. <laughs> so uh, he wrote uh, Gene Roddenberry a very lengthy letter, w uh, which you know, paraphrasing, says he was worried about how real scientists were going to view the show. But after his arrival, he found that of course they loved the right. show. He writes, "The trip through Goddard was very exciting, and I found them constantly pointing out equipment and procedural activities as they specifically related to equipment and procedures on our show." In the communication room, for example, comments were made such as, uh, this is the equivalent to the communications panel on the starship, uh, on, the, on the bridge of your ship. In general, there is very strong interest, he continues to say, in the scientific possibility as expressed by science fiction writers and Star Trek, since these ideas stimulate the thinking of the more pragmatic scientists whose job it, is, uh, whose job it becomes to implement these theories. In short, it was an exciting privilege to be able to represent the show in that environment. So that's pretty fun. Rod, uh, Nimoy's having a good time seeing where all the, the real stuff is happening. It's also around the same point yeah, where yeah. Roddenberry sees the true financial potential for Star Trek. Uh, we know already that uh, Nimoy's, Nimoy's Bilbo Baggins record was selling great. Uh, the models that they were selling at the time were also selling really great. But it was at a major event at one of the conventions. It was a benefit auction where proceeds went to bring a Japanese science fiction fan 
over to the United States. And of course, it was Bijou and John Trimble who were the heads of the auction committee. Of course, they're going to become very important here uh, very shortly in the Star Trek legacy. But they asked uh, Roddenberry to donate Star Trek memorabilia for the event. So among the items he sent in were scripts, sketches by Matt Jeffries, uh, a green velour female's tunic, weird, a uh, Kirk's torn shirt from Amok Time, several retired pairs of Spock ears, a couple of Roddenberry's original series proposals for Star Trek, and a uh, copy of the Writer's Bible. There was also a box filled with small balls of fur labeled tribbles, although no one at the time knew what they were yet. These donated items uh, became the second biggest draw at the convention. And uh, within two and a half hours, the $5,000 needed to bring uh, the fan over from Japan was raised. Yeah. So uh, at this point, he decides then he's going to uh, make his own, a second company that he names the Star Trek Company so that he can uh, hope to bring, uh, he can hope to make a little more money off of cool stuff on the side. During the first part of September, on four separate days, Shatner here had four separate interviews, one in Milwaukee, one in Cincinnati, one in Miami, then in New York. Uh, Then two days later, he was in Indy, with the next day he was going on the Mike Douglas show in Philly. Now, a normal man, you would think, would get tired, but not Mr. Shatner, who wrote, I can't stress enough how impressed I was by this trip and how much we accomplished in our appearances on individual stations. Without exception, the station promotional people were delighted to have us in their cities and expressed the hope that it wouldn't be too long between visits. They assured us, and we were convinced that appearances in their cities mean as much as two to three points in the ratings. So, there you go. He was super glad to be uh, getting them off. A year previous to all of this, though, the Trimbles, who we just mentioned, ran into Roddenberry at a convention. Roddenberry said, hey, if you ever make it to L.A., uh, look me up. I'll get you a tour of the set. So it's at this point now in the calendar where they then decide to go to L.A. and Roddenberry, and uh, uh, they take Roddenberry up on his offer. And to their surprise, he not only remembered them, but still offered them the tour. Uh, Bijou said this. Uh, He would often let fans come to the set until he found out that their insurance wouldn't cover it. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, But he did take us to lunch, and then uh, we talked about the show, and he was thrilled that uh, this creation was responded so much by fans. We talked for quite a while, and then he took us to the set. We were impressed by the workmanship and by the enthusiasm from both workers and the actors. uh, Roddenberry then offered, like, hey, come back anytime you're in L.A. I'll show you around again. It was great. And oddly enough, they were fired from their job, and they ended up moving to L.A. Oh, no, they got a new job in L.A. But then once they got there, they were shortly fired due to downsizing. Uh, Bijou goes on to explain, uh, both of us were speed typists, so we got a job at a script typing service. In those days, they didn't do anything in-house at studios, and they sent scripts out to be typed up. And there were only like three of these services, I believe. And uh, they, they all had to be close to the studios. So the one we worked at was the one closest to Paramount and Desilu, so we got all of these scripts from them, you know, for the Marlo Thomas show and things like that. And Star Trek scripts started coming through across the desk. And they'd bring them over to us because they said, well, you're science fiction fans. You'll understand all this gobbledygook. So we began to get more and more acquainted with Star Trek. And then John talked me into letting us uh, make the deliveries. So they would let him deliver the scripts over to the studio, which at that point he got to talk to Gene a lot more. 
So that's kind of uh, one half of what I wanted to talk about this week. The other big thing, of course, as I alluded to earlier, was uh, the war between the genes. Gene Kuhn, Gene Roddenberry. Um, which wasn't really a war. I guess calling it a war is maybe overstating what it was. But it was two people who had very different ideas of what the show was. And not surprisingly, the creator is going to win out. That's probably not too shocking. Uh, but I'm going to start this story by telling you a love story. Aw. So as, uh, as Gruff and uh, his, as his exterior was, Gene Kuhn was a man who had a, a, a big heart. He, he liked to tell uh, epic love stories um, like uh, Metamorphosis, for example. But he had one of his own in his life. When he was discharged from the Marines, uh, Kuhn went ahead and, like many people, went to school on the GI Bill. He went to the Columbia School of Broadcasting. Uh, two of the women in that class had uh, caught his eyes. Kuhn had developed a fondness for one of the girls, Jackie Owings, and she seemed to return the feelings, but she was engaged to be married. Right? Delicate situation. And since she was engaged, Kuhn decided that uh, he'd uh, date this other woman he had his eye on, and her name was Joy. His secretary, Jean Kuhn, who knew him very well, said that it was never a passionate love. Even at the beginning, it was just that she was there. Devastated that the love of his life had married another man, uh, he began dating Joy, and within a year they were married, and ten years later, Coon had become terribly unhappy in his marriage. Jimmy Doon recalls, She didn't love him as much as he had hoped. Gene said that's what broke his heart the most. Nichelle Nichols also tells a story about them being at a banquet. Both Jeans and neither of their marriages were working. <clears throat> she puts it like this, Everyone at the table was obviously uncomfortable witnessing the wives' withering put-downs while Jean and Jean just sat silently smoking their cigarettes, staring off into the distance. Difficult. Even more difficult. As fate would have it, a short time later, Kuhn had a reunion with his first crush. Jackie, now divorced, had had a modeling career. And one day... Coon, on his way into work, looks up and sees Jackie looking down on him from a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. So as soon as he gets to work, he dives into the casting photos to see if he can find her. So he calls her in for a casting gig, but doesn't let them know who he is. So she shows up and sees Gene, and they go into their office. And according to the secretary, an hour later, he came out the happiest he had ever been. So he tries to end his marriage and starts living with Jackie again. But his uh, secretary has this to say, which is that's when he was really stressed because that period when he had Jackie and he was still looking after Joy and he had this new house to pay for and the old house to pay for, these dogs that he left behind whom he loved. So, of course, you know, he had to get new dogs and then Jackie didn't want to work, so he got her and taking care of Jackie and Joy and the dogs and the vets and all of these things. Cashman goes on to write, Amidst all this change in Gene Kuhn's personal life, there was a great change turning in his professional life too. Cashman goes on to write, 
Gene Roddenberry, of course, he had always aspired to be famous, and uh, he wanted to be perceived by his peers as, as the next Jonathan Swift, right? We've talked about him before. An influential writer of stories about so social stigmas, prejudice, sex, politics, and religion. Gene Kuhn, on the other hand, was merely happy to entertain. He was not driven to be revered as a creator of a message-heavy drama. And uh, he said he was not uh, about to risk his career over a single TV show, whereas Roddenberry was. So here we are. Two fundamental differences between not only, you know, how they want to be seen for the rest of their lives, but also regarding the tone and the direction of Star Trek, right? As we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we know Roddenberry did not appreciate iMud and the Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, he found them too lighthearted. They weren't very message heavy. And so because of those two things, obviously, uh, did not work out uh, very well for these two. So another thing that Roddenberry had with what was happening in Star Trek lately is he felt like there was a lot of redundancy. He felt like we were seeing the same kinds of stories over and over again. And this was also pointed out by DC Fontana, who wrote a memo talking about some of the scripts that they had in production that seemed like episodes of things that we had already seen. Half of these episodes would end up being shelved because they couldn't change them in any meaningful way to make them uh, dissimilar for what we had seen in the past. Of course, Roddenberry responds the next day to uh, Fontana's memo by saying, I was pleased to get your memo regarding the similarities between various stories that we have in the works because I was concerned about the same thing. So now Roddenberry, he, uh, so Roddenberry then pushes uh, DC Fontana in charge of keeping the, uh, this very thing at bay. So now there's like forces now working against Kuhn while not directly against Kuhn, right? Right. So Roddenberry comes back. He sees what's happening with Troubles with Triples. He watches an edit of iMud and uh, hates, you know, doesn't hate them both, but just feels like uh, it's not what he wants for Star Wars. And, uh, Star and Roddenberry, Trek. what's that? Star Trek. Star Trek. Star Trek. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> in uh, and in Roddenberry's words, bread and cir uh, bread and circuses. His idea for a parallel world story uh, with a serious message about slavery had been turned into something more resembling a comic opera in 1967 Rome. Well, he obviously didn't like that episode. Obviously, we'll get more into that episode next, but. Uh, and Kuhn, who, of course, had cut his teeth on comedy, right? As we had talked about before, he had done McHale's Navy, he had done the Munsters, and uh, Roddenberry was uh, wondering if he was a questionable babysitter for Star Trek. Roddenberry says, I was always determined not to let Star Trek cross over into lost in space territory. I was never opposed to humor in Star Trek, but I did make a conscious effort to draw the line at camp, he says. David Gerald goes, goes on to uh, continue discussing the differences between the two by saying, Gene L. Kuhn's characters joked with one another. Roddenberry always took the show too seriously, and everybody preached. I think Roddenberry wanted to be a preacher. He said, in the future, our people will work together. But what he would write would be sermons. In Gene L. Kuhn's scripts, people interacted with each other in a whole different way and didn't preach. Which leads me to something that uh, Gene Roddenberry's son wrote, and... Uh, I want to talk about this because, uh, well, I disagree with it, so that's why. Um, he said, but I think that there is, um, he's talking about the Trouble of Triples, but I don't think that there was uh, enough depth in that episode, and it doesn't really elevate Star Trek 
to where it is today. So I'm glad my dad was preachy, he says. To which I say, uh, what episodes are remembered to this day, right? I mean, are we looking, is Adonis, is is that like in the hierarchy of episodes that people remember? Is it the Trouble with Tribbles? Yeah. We're talking, we're going to go into the second half of season two and then talk about the entireness of season three, which has a few highlights in it. So uh, what's your take on what uh, young Roddenberry said? Um, I think part of the lasting influence of Star Trek has to be its intellectual content, its, its grappling with social issues. So that's definitely something to preserve. It's something to value. I think that they could take that too far. They could be too serious, too full mm. of themselves, too invested in the idea that they were creating serious art. And overlook the comedy and the entertainment that, one, makes it more appealing, right? So you want to bring people in so that they can hear your elevated message and your intellectual content and your social commentary. You also, and I think this is part of the secret of Star Trek, you want to do it subtly, (laughs) right? And being too preachy just makes it irritating and unpleasant. Whereas if you... If you think, hey, this is some good entertainment, and I enjoyed it, and that was a great episode, and then you stop and reflect, and you're like, hmm, there was some interesting commentary in there. You're much more open and accepting of it than if you're like, oh my goodness, did, you know, they were just hitting us with the hammer on that one. And, and then, you know, I think the final piece is that you know, there's, there's a, a value in and of itself, to some of the comedy and being broad, not being one thing. So Roddenberry's concerned about these episodes that, you know, well, we have three kinds of episodes. We stop the supercomputer. We encounter the all-powerful alien being. And, you know, we fight some Klingons. But it's also a problem if every episode is social commentary, social commentary, social commentary. You don't want... You want to have an episode that's fun. You want to have an episode that has action and adventure. You want to have an episode that, you know, deals with some interesting intellectual paradox. You know, you want to have one that deals with some interesting future projection about what would it be like, you know, like is there money in in the future or whatever. Hmm. You want to have all those kinds of things. You don't want to have one thing over and over again. So, you know, Rodberry's got this valuable thing, but you don't want... You, you have to mix it. You need a mixer, right? You're a bartender. That flavor's a little too strong, and you've got to cut it with something fruity. <laughs> I guess this goes back to what I was saying last week on the show where I was talking about, you know, it's sad that they couldn't get it worked out, that they right. couldn't find what the perfect balance between what Kuhn was doing and what Roddenberry was doing and make it mesh. Well, we have the advantage of hindsight, right? True. We get to look back and figure out what works. And they were stumbling their way through it, you know, discovering it as they went. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, like somebody else was quoted. I didn't write it down. But somebody else was quoted in the book as saying that Kuhn liked to take what worked and keep doing it. Whereas right. Roddenberry was like, it's always got to be different. We got to be doing something else. We got to. And again, there's, there's a benefit to that, right? You figure out the yeah. formula. And, you know, so for me, 
the formula for good Star Trek is, you know, you, you take one of our familiar tropes, the kinds of things that we, that, you know, sometimes it, it may sound like I'm making fun of, right? We're, we're going to have the all-powerful alien. We're going to shut off a, a supercomputer that controls a civilization. We're going to, you know, do a planet of the week. Mm-hmm. We're going to fight a Klingon. You take that, and then you combine it with some interesting intellectual question, right? Some moral dilemma. And then on top of that, you know, you throw in some kind of other genre. This is going to be a procedural. This is going to be an action-adventure. This is going to be... And you don't lose sight of that, right? So you keep the whatever you're doing as a part of the story. And you you put those three things together, and those are the best episodes. That's the best Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nope, you're totally right. So I, I... you know, I want some new and innovative, and I also want want someone who's thinking, you know, this is how this show works. This is what makes it good. Let's not be too experimental. Yeah. Well, you've always said that, too, about uh, The Next Generation, too. You know, you got, like, your holodeck episodes. You got your mm-hmm. Strange Planet episodes. You got your bottle episodes. Can't remember what the fourth was. You always had a fourth. <laughs> I can't remember. But anyway. Anyway. After lengthy behind-closed-doors discussions, uh, Kuhn decided he wanted out. The creative differences contributed greatly to his rash, deci- rash decision, uh, but other factors were at play. Kuhn's true calling was writing. He didn't mind producing and, in fact, would go on to produce again. Uh, but a series uh, such as Star Trek, due to its unique premise and highly distinctive characters, required extensive reworking of other people's scripts, which caused hurt feelings. And this, in addition to fights over the creative direction with Roddenberry and the critical nature of the memos from Justman, Fontana, and Robertson, <clears throat> were wearing Kuhn down. Uh, the next producer, uh, Jackie Roberts, uh, Fernandez, said, When I came along, he was just tired. I think it was a combination of everything, and he was just ready to quit. I also think it's worth pointing out that when, when Gene Kuhn's came along, Roddenberry was basically, you know, like on the verge of exhaustion, perhaps a nervous breakdown. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He had to go on vacation. Yeah, this this show is really demanding. Yeah. In part because of its groundbreaking, it's not like uh, Andy uh, Griffith, Andy Griffith, or Gunsmoke, or these yeah. kind of shows where it's wagon train. Yeah, where like everybody knows how it's going to work, and you don't need to come. Well, we need a new kind of. A new kind of villain. You know, the guy with the black hat seems to be wearing thin. You know, let's have instead uh, a, a cat with a green hat. You know, that nobody has to <laughs> yeah. do that, right? You know, it's yep. basically like, is it going to be ranchers versus farmers? Miners versus settlers? You know, rustlers? You know, <laughs> these are really similar categories compared to the kinds of things that go on in, in Star Trek. And because they're doing something new, they have to, like, flesh it out. They have to figure out, well, how do we make a super powerful alien like Trelane interesting and engaging rather than just, like, we walked into a wall and then we walked into it again and we banged our head against the wall for a while. But they figure that kind of stuff out. Yeah. Uh, another problem, another source of uh, of angst that Gene Kuhn had was uh, coming from the actors, believe it or not. Uh, J. 
John D. Black, the man who is uh, the producer before Gene Kuhn, says this, uh, Bill and Leonard wanted different things. Leonard wanted to uh, be accepted as a serious actor, but Bill wanted to be a star. And as Leonard's popularity grew, I could see that Bill would worry about who had more lines. Of course he would. Captain Kirk was the series lead, and the series lead has to do more. And that means he has more to say. Leonard, on the other hand, didn't worry about that. And this is interesting, I thought. He was more concerned with what we had him say, and now not how much he said. I like that. That's like the perfect differences between, you know, Nimoy and Shatner. Right. You know? That's great. Uh, John D. Black goes on to say this. Uh, I understood that. I started off as an actor, so I knew the difference between these two. I knew they were uh, both qualified to play these parts. They were good at it, and they were perfect. But I don't think Gene Kuhn respected him. He wasn't an actor, and he didn't understand the concerns of actors. An actor who has a... An actor who has an axe to grind has to grind his own way. <laughs> so uh, Gene Kuhn didn't get it, and he was at odds with them all the time. His assistant also said this. Also, by this time, Roddenberry was just sort of slipping in and out of the back door. He was there, then he wasn't there, then he was there, and then he wasn't. And that put a lot more pressure on Gene Kuhn. And every script that came through, uh, he twiddled with it to make it more like Star Trek. And it hurt him terribly when he would get some of the letters from other writers complaining about how much they had changed his work. So it's at this point where we get uh, John Meredith Lucas, the writer of The Changeling, which we uh, just talked about there, Nomad. Uh, he said, well, I was directing on Mannix. I had uh, written a script for Star Trek and I uh, was finding, uh, finding time at night in between takes. Then Gene Kuhn calls me uh, to the set and asks me to stop by his office when I was finished. So Lucas goes by Kuhn's office, and he says, uh, hey, you know what? Why the hell don't you take over? You produced The Fugitive and Ben Casey and all that shit. So uh, at first, Gene Roddenberry wouldn't let, let uh, Gene Kuhn leave because of the contract. The only way uh, they'd let Gene out was uh, if he continued to write for the show. So Lucas, in the meantime, was invited to Roddenberry's home that Sunday. He uh, meets Roddenberry's wife, and they get on really well talking about science fiction. The next day, he's uh, on the lot, and he sees, uh, hey, my wife says uh, you're going to be the one. This is flattering, but it's hardly a firm offer. Until the next day when a telegram arrives, and uh, Gene Roddenberry had officially offered him his job. So Gene Kuhn, unfortunately, had to stay on for another month uh, because of his contract. But luckily, all he had to do was finish four more episodes to finish the uh, 16 that uh, NBC had originally called for. <clears throat> Gene Kuhn would then go on to uh, create the television show It Takes a Thief with Glenn Larson. And uh, for those of you who are a fan of 70s and 80s television, you know Glenn Larson very well. He was a very famous producer in uh, that time period. But uh, he took Gene Kuhn on. Uh, they were friends already at that point, so... So Kuhn was obliged to finish producing NBC's initial order, like I said. 13 were in the can, and episode 14, Bread and Circuses, which we'll be talking about next week, was scheduled to begin filming at uh, the following week when the key cast members returned from their promotional tour. Journey to Babel and A Private Little War were slated to follow. And after that, that would leave Lucas in charge, provided there was anything else to be left in charge of. So Lucas inherits the job. He has a pile of scripts, some of which had already been rewritten by Kuhn. Uh, some of these 
so he starts taking the less demanding ones, starts polishing these scripts and preparing uh, to prepare them for filming, just in case that the uh, the rest of the order was picked up by NBC. But luckily, Kuhn was there for the next few weeks to give guidance, notes, and apologies for the ones that were not in very good shape. And uh, that is it. That is the end of uh, what I wanted to talk about this episode. We've got a lot to talk about in the next episode because um, <clears throat> the next episode was one of those episodes that uh, Roddenberry was, wasn't very happy with. He felt it was too similar to, of all the shows, Amok Time. Because uh, Spock and Kirk were supposed to fight to the death in that one, except this time Kirk was supposed to die. Well, it doesn't happen that way in the episode, but you'll have to wait till next week to find out how, what does happen. So uh, that's it. Anything about, else about all of this you want to throw in here, Ken? You know, even though you've got these conflicts and these guys are struggling and they're, they're in a sense, you know, paying a, a toll, right? It's costing them something in terms uh-huh. of their happiness or their, you know, momentary, I don't mean like in the moment, but I mean like weeks, months at a time level of stress, exhaustion, frustration, they're getting it right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, all that effort, that frustration, that that struggle was, was worth something because what they produced was, it, it's, it stood up. We're still making content in this franchise. <laughs> exactly. And as we said, these have been some of the best episodes that we've, uh, you know, that we've been hitting in these last couple of weeks. So, yeah. Uh, yeah awesome well that's uh that's gonna wrap it up for this episode another fun behind the scenes one next week we'll get back to the actual show proper but i felt that was all important information moving forward because obviously that's going to affect uh, the stories that are told and why they are told the way they are so that's it anyway my name is matt coming to you from austin and coming from planet houston is my brother ken say goodbye ken live long and prosper and we'll see you all next week <laughs>